You're listening to Just, stories about the people working to build thriving communities rooted in justice. I'm Jess Averhart, co-founder of Black Wall Street Homecoming. And I'm Rob Shields, executive director of the ReCity Network. All right, look, so here's why we're here. We're here to get proximate. We're here to listen. We're here to process. And we're here to help you process. But here's what we're not going to do. We're not going to be preachy because we don't have all the answers. And we will never make you feel like an outsider. Keeping with the theme of sharing, we always want to acknowledge the whole person. And that starts with our personal Personal check-in. Let's do it. All right. Rob Shields, my favorite co-host. How are you, friend? We actually, that's, you just threw me off because we never do that. We actually never actually call each other by our names <laughs> our to start name, out. So like guess. really just threw me for a curve. I wasn't prepared for that. <laughs> It'd be like you calling me Jessica with my, yes. I'd be like, what's happening? Am I in trouble? Or when you're uh, like, your kids are little and they call you by your name instead of mom or dad, it's just like, whoa, dad, what? Yeah. No, I'm right. not robbed to you. I'm, I'm dad. I'm Don't. friend. And I've always, I always say, Hey friend. That's yeah, right. that's right. You know why I'm so, so formal today? Let me say, let me tell you why. Today, I think it's important for our listeners to know that the headlines we woke up to is that we're a year in. Today is Mm -hmm. like the year anniversary of COVID hitting the U.S. I mean, not hitting the world, but hitting the U.S. And so I I thought that deserved a little formality, Rob Shields, that we are, Mm -hmm. we've made it one whole year together on this podcast, kind of addressing issues that that COVID has shined that big light on, right? In bigger ways in our communities that we try to touch and serve through this this work. So I don't know when you think about that, we need to take a second to reflect. I think we should probably just do it. You know, like, yeah. just, what is that? How does that feel? What was, that's like when Kennedy was assassinated or the challenger, right? It's like, or 9-11, right? Like, 9/11, where were you? You're yeah. like, where were yeah. you? And what, all the things. So it's, what were, what do you remember the week that COVID hit our shores? Yeah. Well, yeah, I have a, Thank you. I think that's really important to pause and just do that mm-hmm. reflection of just even just making the space to grieve the loss of the past year. I think for me yeah. is really it's an important practice to not just pretend like it's all good. Like you have to actually create that space. I think I found personally in my life to lament, right? Or and to grieve loss. And there's been so much of it everywhere yeah. you look. And for me, when I think back on where I was, right? That moment. I don't remember any one specific moment, but I think kind of personally and professionally, the markers that I think of a year ago were personally, I was coming off what I thought was a hard January to 2020. (laughs) And it's so laughable now. Like my son, I think if you go back and listen to our podcast at that time, I'll probably have mentioned these things. Like my littlest two-year-old had broken his leg and then he kind of mm-hmm. got a stomach bug. So he was sick and sick, gimping yeah. around the house. And <laughs> I just thought, man, we got to get through this month. Like whenever you have a sick kid and you're, everything's relative, yeah. right? You're like, life is Everything. just hard. And then yeah. little did I know, oh, the bottom was just about to fall out. And all my kids were going to come home from school. And we're just going to be, turn our living room into virtual kindergarten and to me, that was when it started getting real of like, I had four little reminders running around my house that life is not going to look the same for a while. And I would say on the professional side, that hit me when ReCity is in the business of gathering people and, and right. making creating proximity. And so when you got yeah. the announcement that said, oh, you need to stay six feet apart. We're like, yeah. I mean, I, I think what made it real for me, Jess, I remember the day when I had to go into our co-working space and start pulling furniture 
Oh man. And start yeah. putting it into storage and taking even just like the grief and the and, and grieving that of like, man, this can't look the same for who knows how long because I had to pull chairs where like you could picture people sitting at the same table building bridges. And like yeah. now you have to take a chair away. And like, even just, like, sad, I, it is, oh, it was so really sad. sad. <laughs> and like, I, it was a processing of like, wow. Like, so it was weird. Like the personal, my house started getting way full and then ReCity started yeah. getting really empty. empty. And the juxtaposition wow. of those two things was just like, if it's a, it takes me back to that moment where it's just, and we're still in that. My kids are still at home. The co-working mm-hmm. space is still a, really just a skeleton of what it looked like and and who knows how much longer hopefully lights it in the tunnel but that's how i've been processing just a lot of loss a lot of things not being everything they should be and yeah i think it's just really important to name that and create the space to to face those things as we move forward how about you where were you on march 11th 2020 <laughs> and what does that look like as you look back on and reflect on the last 12 months Well, I definitely remember feeling dazed and confused. I was just like, what is happening? Is this like really happening? Like, are they serious about this distancing? And at the time that wasn't about mask wearing, but it was just like a weird, like, are they for real? Or is this just kind of letting us know that we should just be careful? And I remember the next day I was planning a happy hour social event for a leadership organization that I led. And I had to, I talked to my board and they were like, no, we're not gonna be liable for people getting sick. We don't understand this virus and we don't know what's going on. And so if they're saying we need to take this seriously, we need to take it seriously. And, and I canceled an event and I did it still dazed and confused, like, okay, are we overreacting kind of thing? And yeah, so that, and then I had another event that I was closely connected to and was helping to plan that got canceled. And so I think that was just starting to see the dominoes fall of social events in my life that I was connected to. That was difficult. And of course, the listeners will remember the whole drama of like whether or not my son was going to go to prom and Mm. is prom still happening? What about graduation? And like those questions started popping up that week when they stayed home was like, well, we're staying home, but what does that mean for graduation and prom? Those questions for him, because he was a senior started really early. And I just, again, I keep using days and confused. I was like, oh, it's not a thing. It'll be fine. We just need just a couple of weeks. We just need some time. By May, it'll be fine. Right. And I think now nobody even looks at the marker. We're not even looking at the marker of when it's going to be quote unquote fine. Right. We just mm. want people to get vaccinated. We want people mm. to be able to get to their vaccinations. We want people to be safe at this stage. It's not about, can I please return to all the cool, fun things? Right. It's just, can we just get people safe? So they can re- resume life in a way that is healthy and normal, mentally healthy, physically healthy, and some sense of just safety around their community. That's all I care about anymore. Whether we have an event to go to or not would be great. I just want people to feel that. Like my mom, I want her to get vaccinated, right? She's hedging a little bit and she's certainly in the category, but because she's had so much fear instilled in her over the last year, even leaving to get her vaccination is something we have to work through. So we're mm-hmm. working on that now. But Mm. yeah, but I think now that we're a year in, right, you do start to, you do start to look up a little bit more. I know I have and started to reimagine and think about how to enter community in a new way and how to be Mm. an active, more thoughtful (laughs) citizen in my community. How how can I help sort of give a shot in the arm? Total pun intended, right? Yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, thank you. I, I, I came up with that literally on the spot. It was, <laughs> <laughs> but I think about our guests 
um, today, which I'm I'm really excited about our guest today because the work that she does is it reminds me of the work that I was so deeply involved in tangentially with the American Underground and the Google for startups and the entrepreneur space when we did so many Kickstarters, right? We had all these new businesses and kickstarting was like the hot thing to help move businesses forward and get them, help them understand if there's a product market fit and all that good stuff. And those were the days, man. I loved that, the the excitement of being able to participate in dream making. And then when we, when you brought forward Eve, who was our guest today, Eve Pickler, I was like, this is crowdsourcing. This is crowdsourcing at the coolest level. And so I, I want to make sure Eve's with us. So Eve, are you on the line? And I'm going to introduce you in just a second. Are you with us? I'm with you. Hey, Eve. Thanks for having me here today. Oh my gosh. We're so glad that you're, we're so, we're so glad that you've joined us. We did a little bit of a prompt before and know that you're extremely busy. Um, you're also kind of experiencing this COVID one year anniversary personally. But before we get into that, I, I just want to thank you for the time because I know that oh, you've got a, a lot going yeah. on. Yeah. <sighs> so for our listeners, Eve, you're the founder of Small Change, which is just a great name. I was referencing this with Rob earlier. I love it. Small Change yes. which is a real estate equity crowdfunding platform. And you're focused on raising funds for these meaningful real estate projects that we might find in the urban communities, blighted communities, right? Underestimated communities where there's a real promise when you find these opportunities and then you allow, and I'm here, I'm going to kind of go off script here, but you invite anyone who has an interest in real estate investment to take a look at these portfolios and they can participate in an investment. Whereas in many cases, we always feel like, oh, that's not for me. I don't have enough capital, but you make it manageable for people to enter into a real estate space at a very small investment. You don't guarantee returns, but it, it's a way for a community member to invest in an underestimated community with the possibility of return. That's correct. But I do this all on the back of SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission regulations, just to be clear. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, it's good. Yeah. That's a great qualifier. Asterisk, SEC. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> very good. Well, well, Eve, we did our check-in. Rob and I did our check-in. I'd love to I'd love to hear how you're doing. Just get to know you and get our listeners to have an, an opportunity to know you. And then you can help us unpack the work that you do, the good work that you do. So how are you, Eve? Really well. So I'm going to do my COVID check-in. Um, yeah. My one year is 3.15 when I actually came down with COVID-19. And I would say on 3.11, I had an enormous feeling of dread. My husband had insisted on going on a work trip to Sweden He was actually on one of the last planes back into the country before they shut things down. And I tried to convince him not to go. And I just had this sense that things were going to go upside down. And then I I got sick. And yeah, I mean, just like you, I think the first, I mean, I was pretty sick, high fever for 15 days. So, uh, so in a sense that shielded me from a lot of what was going on. And my business kind of, well, we actually have a small co-working business. We just completed the website and had to shut that down immediately. But that wasn't really the most painful thing. Like my my crowdfunding business actually just went 
almost silent in the spring. It was an interesting mm -hmm. phenomenon. And then in the summer, it's almost like people woke up and we have never been busier. It's almost like the world said, okay, well, this is the way it's going to be. Let's just get on with it. So there were a few very quiet months, which was interesting. At the same time, I have a real estate portfolio and I've given away so much free rent. I can't even, I don't even count it anymore. And early on, it was very painful to think through how to manage all of that. But now I'm sort of just resigned to it. It feels like normal. I work with my tenants and they're honest with me and I'm honest with them. And we try to figure out what we can all do to help each other. Because I think most of them understand that many landlords are small business owners too and, and are mm, suffering. Yeah. So we have a building, the Liberty Bank building in East Liberty, which is actually a flagship co-working building. We have a, a management group that management manages desk for us. And I think at the end of last year, it was 40% occupied. And that was a 30,000 square foot building. So wow. I hope people understand how tough that is. It's endless calls to banks asking for stays on interest payments and principal payments and just trying to stay afloat and do the right thing by your tenants. It's, very, it's been yeah. a really tough year. But yeah. there have been some really interesting upsides too, I think. I've seen... I think I've seen people come together in a way that just wasn't before this year. The marches are just generally the tone of conversation I have with minority developers on my platform is really shifting, which is, for me, really wonderful. So, you know, a little bit of good mixed in with the bad, right? Yeah. Well, that sounds about right. That sounds about the cadence we're hearing, right? It's the, yeah. It's a little bit of the same kind of woes around COVID, and yet we're still finding some light amongst all of that, which I think is what we need to hold on to, which is really helpful in these times. Eve, first of all, I want to share with our listeners that you're calling in from Pittsburgh. So yes. where's Eve? Eve's in Pennsylvania. She's right there in the gritty little town of Pittsburgh. I love Pittsburgh so much. I'm not a Steelers fan, Eve. I'm a Bengals fan. So um, it's okay. Are you a football I'm, fan? I'm, I mean, I, I appreciate that sports are... <laughs> really what make this city move, <laughs> but I'm not really yeah. a sports fan. <laughs> as long as you can appreciate the Oh, value I really appreciate it, yeah. It's, so it's total pop culture here, I think. <laughs> oh, it's true. So much tradition in Pittsburgh, yeah. for sure. Let's talk about the why a little bit. So we, you know, we set up and you kind of started to get into this a bit, but the work that you're doing is really, it's really interesting. I haven't, there probably are others who are doing what you're doing, but I haven't, I just haven't seen it. And so why are you doing real estate investing through crowdsourcing? Like what's the problem? And then why would you choose communities that suffer from deep inequity in blighted communities besides just the business proposition? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, like what's the equity play here so that our sure. listeners can kind of think about it from all sides? Well, you might have noticed I don't have a Pittsburgh accent, right? So I, can, mm -hmm. I grew up in Australia <laughs> and, and came to the United States to do a master's in New York and unexpectedly ended up in Pittsburgh, which has really been unexpected pleasure. And it was really, when we arrived, it was probably one of Pittsburgh's worst moments in time. Pittsburgh had at its peak, uh, a population of almost 700,000 people, and now it's just over 300,000. So there are many blighted and vacant neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. I would say it's really the Detroit story, but it's mm. resolved itself now. But I think 
one of the things that saved Pittsburgh is its topography. It has lots of hills and valleys. And so you see, you just don't see all the blight laid out in front of you like you do in Detroit, which is very flat. I don't know if you know this, but Pittsburgh has 900 bridges over rivers and land alike. So I had no um, idea. I yeah, have yeah, gone yeah. across the bridge from Youngstown or from Ohio into Pittsburgh, and it's, it's hands down is one of my most favorite views of all time. It's, it's a really beautiful city. And over the last 10 years, it's really, or even 15 years, it's really transformed itself. And I don't think anyone can point to any particular thing as being the tipping point. There are many things. We lost an entire industry, the steel industry, and that's really where most of the losses came, along with suburban flight. And so when I arrived here, I was in the city with a ton of blight, a ton of spectacular spectacular buildings, which are a result of the philanthropy from the Mellons and, and all of those very wealthy steel barons, and, yep. and nothing much happening. And call me naive, maybe, but I'm an, a trained architect and urban designer, and I moved into a neighborhood and helped found a development corporation, a nonprofit with other like-minded architects and sort of gradually learned about real estate in neighborhoods like that and what it would take. And then I worked for the planning department and I sort of, I just fell in love with this, with taking places and buildings that have no purpose and no meaning and transforming them into something useful. So I became a real estate developer and I started my own real estate development company. Real estate developer is a very big word. You can be a real estate developer and build, dare I say, the Trump Towers, or you can focus on small neighborhoods and tiny houses, right? So real estate developers come from all sorts of backgrounds, architects, lawyers, all sorts of people become real estate developers. So my version was really colored by my experience as an architect and my love of cities. And so I was never really interested in doing a deal on a greenfield just for the sake of doing a deal. I was always interested in doing something interesting, challenging, and I've been doing this nonprofit work. And so I had a pretty good understanding of the way that financing those difficult to finance buildings worked. So I built a little practice and became pretty expert at doing small, public, privately financed deals with the city and the Urban Redevelopment Authority, always my primary partners, and sometimes my husband and my contractor and my architect who I convinced to leave equity in the projects. But these projects were not projects that you could go to someone with money with deep pockets and say, invest in this and you'll have a great return in three years. That was right. These were the long haul projects that required patience and and vision. And I, I really, I mean, I think that's what fundamentally real estate is about and you need to think about it that way. It is, if you're really going to do something purposeful, it takes a long time for it to come to fruition. You've got to plan it and get it approved and get it built. And then you have to fill it and stabilize it. And, you know, it's a long, long process. So a variety of things happened in the 2000s that stopped in, in, in that decade that really stopped me doing more real estate like that. I built a really interesting portfolio. I was the first loft developer in downtown Pittsburgh, a small eight-floor building. I bought buildings from the city that I renovated, buildings that had been empty for 20 years. So I, it small buildings, but they gave me a lot of joy. And 
in in the 2000s, two things happened that really changed that equation because I, I had an equation. I had a way to build these with partners that would provide the money that was different than building a high-profit project that just provides a return for people who are wealthy. And the first thing that happened was the Urban Redevelopment Authority lost a major stream of funding because the Bush administration cut back on something called CBDG funds, uh, Community Development Block Grants. Those funds flowed to cities and then cities would figure out what to do with them. And our Urban Redevelopment Authority would repurpose them as second deferred mortgages so that projects where a bank would only provide 40% of financing because there's no market there yet, they would come in with additional funding. So that funding just dried up. And then the second thing that happened was, of course, the bank collapse. And what we saw was larger and larger equity requirements. So, you know, the projects I was doing, I was able to build things with 5% equity because of the Urban Redevelopment Authority involvement and their relationships with banks. But by 2010, 2012, that equity piece had grown to 40%, 35 40%, really making it impossible to do the projects I was doing. And so I stopped doing real estate development, started stabilizing my buildings and figuring out what to do next. And then someone came along to me and talked to me about the Jobs Act. And it was someone in construction who said, look, I think there's a play here. I think I knew nothing about securities at all, nothing. I'm really trained as an architect and urban designer. This young man said, look, with this, with these new laws that have been signed in by the Obama administration, Really, the purpose of them is to shift crowdfunding for donations to crowdfunding for investment. And what the other thing I'd learned in Pittsburgh and I've seen in many cities is that people have a palpable need to participate in the improvement of their cities. And, you know, I had neighbors who would band together to buy a house to stop it falling into a bad landlord's hands. So, Crowdfunding has been happening for a long time, right? And so I really believe from my experience that there were crowds of people who would participate to make good development happen where they lived and that they could also benefit from that by participating. And so I sort of went down this path of learning about the Jobs Act of 2012 and becoming a securities expert, which I never in my wildest dreams thought I would become, and built a platform based on these new rules that were rolled out as a result of the Jobs Act of 2012. And those rules, without going into too much detail, really pointed firmly at the democratization of investment and being able to advertise investment opportunities and being able to let anyone over the age of 18 invest. Yeah, it's good stuff. I love that. Yeah. Thank you for that. And and yeah. I, Rob's got a question for you, but I wanted to sort of put a fine point on something that you said that communities, whether people realize this or not, families and communities have been doing crowdfunding to support each other and to lift their communities up for like ages from funeral costs before life insurance was available to getting kids through college, kids in the neighborhood through college and starting small little funds between family members or between community members. And so I love that you've provided a platform and a technology platform where the democratization of real estate investment, which we know is a pathway to wealth, is so clearly laid out and is accessible. I mean, I've been on, Rob and I both were 
looking through your portfolio and and I we hadn't talked about this in advance and we both were like all over this one in Baltimore. It was Baltimore, right, Rob? And I was yeah. like, this is, uh, this is so good. I, you know, that one's I'm reading, closed like, That's now. <laughs> it's closed. Rob's like, I was it filled up too. really I mean, fast. Yeah. I'm more. sure. <laughs> yeah. It's exciting. It's exciting. Yeah. It gets you excited to feel like you can participate in a space that often feels so like exclusive. exclusive. Yeah, yeah. Exclusive. So I, yeah. anyways, I just thank you for sharing that backstory. Really and, and you know, that exclusivity, I think is probably what drives me because, you know, that's the way it was brought up. My parents hated that. They were very modest and there's something about exclusivity that makes me feel very uncomfortable. And so my husband says I have an overly adjusted sense of fairness. And so I, I just don't understand. I really don't understand why a $100,000 check from someone who's wealthy is better than a $2,000 investment from someone who's not. And there's nothing worse than hearing a developer say they're going to provide better terms to wealthy investors. That just makes me see red. <laughs> yeah. So what I love about these rules is you create this securities offering and anyone can invest. And actually on Monday, there are upgrades to the rule we love the most, regulation crowdfunding, that are spectacular upgrades. And they make it even easier for non-accredited investors, those who are not as wealthy, to invest more mm -hmm. and for accredited investors to invest as much as they want all into the same deal. This conversation is such a fascinating one, Eve, and I want to dig into the X's and O's of how small change works. But just to kind of help give our listeners a little bit more, you're, you clearly are an expert in so much of the legal nuance, the regulation nuance. But correct me if I'm wrong, in, in kind of doing some research for, for this interview and really for me kind of diving into this a little bit more on my own educating journey, finding out that until recently, and you already referred to this, but from a monetary standpoint, helping our listeners understand that anyone less than a million anyone that has less than a million dollars in assets and $200,000 in annual income, which would be the vast majority of Americans, was classified as an unaccredited yeah. investor. It's actually worse than that. Less than a million dollars in assets, excluding your primary residence. Wow. And you, you have to have had $200,000 in income for three years. So, yeah, wow. it's about 3% of the population is considered accredited, which totally shocks me that it's such a small percentage, leaving 97% of the population in the non-accredited group. And now where it really gets worse is when you start to realize that income is inequitable across the United States. Right. So right. in a place like Pittsburgh, you're going to have far fewer people who meet the $200,000 bar than in New York or in Los Angeles or right. perhaps in Florida. So you see wealth congregating in certain places and not in others. So it makes it even harder to raise money from accredited investors, which was really only the only route before in certain places, right? Mm. So the JOBS Act moved raising money from out behind the shadows, behind closed doors, where you really had to go find people who were accredited to invest. It mm. moved that equity raising practice out into the open where you can advertise it freely. And it added in some rules that let non-accredited investors invest which the one we, we use is regulation crowdfunding. It's extremely burdensome. We are registered with the SEC and we're members of FINRA. 
and we're surveilled and we're, you know, going through an audit right now, which is going to take at least 120 hours of my time. Mm-hmm. So w- there are many rules that we must follow. But the point of it is that the SEC wants platforms like ours, registered funding portals, we're called to protect investors. And we do that by following the regulations to a T. And that protection mm-hmm. includes everything from giving them educational materials as soon as they become account holders, making sure they're notified about the process all along the way, making sure they can ask their money back up until 48 hours before an offering closes. And even the one I love the most is writing everything in plain English. That is actually Mm -hmm. part of the rule. And also another sort of fascinating part of the rule is that We must communicate electronically with investors and even the developer raising money can't talk to them, not while the offering's going on. The way that he or she's supposed to talk to them is in a chat room on the platform, which is a little cumbersome, but the reason behind it is that everyone should be able to see the question and everyone should be able to see the answer. Yeah. Hmm. Transparency and how important that is. Yeah. To yeah. have everything above board. Yeah. I was like, imagine that. Imagine that transparency <laughs> so that you have understanding. Yeah, yeah. Refreshing, right? I want to get a little philosophical with you in your work and better understand the impact you think you're making. And frankly, the impact that the way in which you approach real estate investing and revitalization may make a bigger impact across the board. So we, we haven't used the word gentrification yet in this interview in real life, but we understand that urban centers have experienced gentrification through growth and developers coming in and real estate prices are going up. And so members of communities who've been long established have find themselves having to move to the outskirts in order to afford housing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gentrification. The work that you're doing, do you feel like the like if you were to take this to scale and there were others like you democratizing this investment, do you think that would then put the justice back into our oh, yeah. these urban centers. Oh, yeah. And are you yes, and are you seeing that? I mean, yes. are you yeah. how do you see that with your work? Well, I'm seeing much larger developers approach us saying that the cities they're working in want them to find a way to let the neighbors, the people in that neighborhood invest and participate in the project. So gentrification is such a difficult topic because you're stuck between neighborhoods that have no investment and wanting to invest in them. And the end result that if it gets away from you, then yes, people have to leave the neighborhood. I think Mm -hmm. I have two buildings in a neighborhood that gentrified over, it happened so fast over a six month period. I was stunned. I thought I would never see it in my lifetime. And it's an unsettling feeling and it was not ever my intent. But I, yeah. I'm part of it, you know. I have these buildings I developed and that changed what was happening in development around them. So so I think, honestly, again, I think it's this really long-term view about real estate. And I, I do think some of it falls in the hands of city governments. You have to be thinking about 
what might happen if a bad neighbourhood or a poor neighbourhood or a disinvested neighbourhood does eventually gentrify 20, 30 years in advance? And what are the tools that you can put in place to protect some people? Maybe not all people, right? But one of the ones I think about a lot, for example, is being priced out of your home because your real estate taxes go up. Right. Because all of a sudden you're living in a house that has much more value. And I think there's such a simple way to deal with that. I think there's one state that actually does this. Imagine that your real estate taxes are fixed when you buy a house and they stay fixed. But whenever someone new buys into the neighborhood, they pay the market rate on real estate taxes because that's what they can afford. And if a neighborhood gentrifies and someone's in a home that cost them $20,000 and now is $300,000 value, they can either choose to stay there or they can sell and cash in. And that little tools like that that I think could be very valuable, and I, I don't think they can protect everyone, but they would protect some people. Thank you for laying that out. That's helpful. Mm-hmm. I think people forget. I don't think people fully get gentrification and how it happens so fast and quietly. Oh, it happens it's like really the, fast, yeah. yeah it's well, like it happens really slowly, but then there's this like a flip all of a sudden. Yeah. I think what I'm doing, yeah, is extremely valuable. It is very difficult to educate people on how to be investors and even one step further, how to invest in real estate. That's a really difficult leap and that's what's Mm. really slowing us down, I believe. Mm. But we're being approached by very large developers who want to find a way to to have a little piece in their projects for the people who live in the neighbourhood so they can also benefit if it does increase in value. I don't know if that's a complete solution, but it's, it's the beginning of thinking about it the right way. Hmm. It's a very difficult problem. We appreciate just the way that you're walking us through this conversation, Eve, because I do think it's so nuanced and so layered and what you're doing to help democratize ownership, right? Really. What what really upsets me is when people who've been really hurt badly by gentrification think of all developers as evil. And that's Mm -hmm. like, that is such a large group of people. And Mm -hmm. there are certainly some who are not thinking about issues like this, but there are plenty who are. So Mm -hmm. if we could find a way to to realize that some developers can help some people, Mm -hmm. some neighborhoods, we're just not there yet. We're a long way off from having those conversations. And I think you're touching on something there where it's just, it's hard to build back trust when trust has Very been difficult. eroded and there's history that you maybe didn't literally didn't have anything to do with if you're coming from from across the world right but you're inheriting nonetheless and it, it can be very real barriers but i think avoiding the generalization that you're talking about naming the fact that small change can be a part of the solution there's a lot yeah. of other threads that we need to pull to really see a community flourish and to see gentrification be truly just small change isn't claiming to be the whole solution, but I oh, think no, it really we're can a tiny be bit of a solution. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. That's, I think that's powerful to, to make that. There's one other thing that in Pittsburgh, black really equals poor. I mean, the suburban flight that happened and the loss of jobs really left people behind who couldn't move. And so there's really sort of almost a missing black middle class. It's very, it's very interesting for me when I go to Atlanta or Detroit to see how different those cities feel when it comes to diversity. They feel entirely different. 
So I think that's also part of the equation. I think one of the, you know, when you're poor and you've really been left out, you have a right to be angry. And there's Mm. a lot of anger in this city. And Mm. it feels different in other places to me. So I think Mm. one of the most gratifying things for me has been over the last year, we've been approached by more and more minority developers who are starting to trust us. And that's like like just scratching the surface, but it feels Mm. very good. Yeah, I'd love to land the plane there, Evie, and I'm so glad that you you took it there because this season, one of our main themes is this concept of fusion friendships and helping and the importance of being able to be in relationship with people who help you see things from a different perspective, from a different lived experience that really help acknowledge that we all have blind spots. And when you're talking about doing the work of, of justice and equity, community development, no one does that work perfectly because no one has... Like everyone's yeah. got weaknesses and everyone's got blind spots. And so for you, as you navigate all of this journey that can be so complex, even just on the legal and policy side, let's land the plane here with the relational side. I know you have a podcast called Rethink Real mm-hmm. Estate for Good, where you interview peers in the real estate impact investing space. Who comes to mind for you as a fusion friendship or someone whose thought leadership in this space has really challenged you? or help you address your own blind spots because of their different lived experience and perspective? No, I honestly have to say it's not one person, but I, I think the whole podcast for me has been an amazing journey. I started it with a particular purpose, but what it's become has been a huge educational journey for me, and I've, I've really, I really loved it. So I don't think it's any one person, but it's been eye-opening in very many ways. And then some of our developers as well. I don't know, it's just all, this whole thing for me, This my business is an education from beginning to end. It sounds like, it sounds like you, and that's, that's why I think it's been so refreshing to talk to you, Eve, is that you come across someone who, while you have figured a lot of stuff out, feel like you're coming across as someone who's, on, who's still on a learning journey and doesn't oh, see yourself yes. as having plateaued and solved all of the issues. It's like almost like you're the way that you've learned and the lessons you've learned has helped you give sight that there's so much more to learn in this yes, space. Yes, and you're trying to take others along the ride with you yeah. incrementally to be able to make meaningful change, which is really inspiring. Well, you know, the podcast also, there are plenty of impact newsletters and ESG things out there. And I mean, I'm a well-educated person, okay? I'm in this space and I don't understand half of what they're talking about. Actually, I don't understand 10% of what they're talking about. That makes so me feel me, better. Okay, because I think I might be hovering so, at 1% to 2%. Yeah. You know, that's actually why we created the Small Change Index, because I thought I couldn't find anything that would tell people in plain English what impact means. And it means that you can get public transport to work because then you don't have to pay to keep a car. It means that you can walk to a park because it's a quality of life issue. It means that there's a grocery store near you. Those are the things I wanted to convey to people. And it's the same thing with a podcast. I want to have everyday conversations with people doing this stuff and demystify it. It's not Mm. three letters ESG. It's a whole world of people tackling problems and issues and trying to transform the world in their own way. And they're just an amazing group of people. I've interviewed 
over 80 people now and every one of them is amazing and doing something different and there's an endless stream of them which is I think astounding it could be an architect who's trying to figure out how to build in only timber it could be someone who decided they really needed to manufacture housing and or it's just I just talked to an ex-marine who has built a whole program to teach other vets how to become real estate developers so they can participate in the wealth it's people doing all sorts of amazing things Eve, this is remarkable i feel like i could talk i have so many questions and i'm so inspired by your work and inspired by the approach that you've taken here i always find things like this fascinating when i, I just haven't seen it before I'm like marveling in the mechanism of what you're doing and the potential of what it could be for communities. So I just, I thank you so much for your, for a couple of things. One, again, for your time, but two, for your expertise and your ability to communicate this to our listeners. We do this little bit at the end around show up moment. How can our listeners show up? And if you don't mind, I'm going to offer two things for our listeners on your behalf, if that's okay. Is okay if I share two yeah, things? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. Here's what I think based on what I heard yeah. you say. Here's the two. The first is listen to your podcast around Rethink Real Estate for Good. So I think that's a good place for our listeners to participate in learning more. And again, thinking about how or learning about how you think about this work. And the second thing would be for our listeners to get more closely connected to small change. Just go on the website and play around and look at what what the portfolios look like and look at the comment section and see the questions people are asking and just get involved. I think it's a good way for our listeners to participate in this work if this has piqued their interest, which I suspect that it might have. So Eve, I again want to thank you on behalf of Rob and I and the Just Podcast for just being a really solid voice on this issue And I frankly think that if if there were many more of you, this idea could solve some real big problems. Well, thank thank you. you. I really appreciate that. Thank you for having me. Oh, my gosh. It was our pleasure. Our pleasure. Thank you, Eve. Okay, Rob. Well, you could tell I got excited towards the end, right? I mean, I just think there's something there. It's exciting. It's really cool stuff. What was your takeaway? I have so many thoughts because I think it's like... My mind is racing because I, well, let me just name one thing. Democratizing real estate investment by being able to have more people be, participate in the process, especially people who have been historically disenfranchised from said process, is an inherently exciting thing. That is mm-hmm. good. I think everything that I've done with ReCity has affirmed that people want to own the solution to the problems that affect their community. That's what I have seen. And so to tap into that, to have a vehicle that allows for that, I think it's great. I do think it could be a tangible part of a solution to helping make gentrification more just. I think it's just the tip of the iceberg, though. And she admitted as much. It's not the way you solve gentrification by itself, but I think it could be a really tangible way, especially the way that she's educating others along the way with transparency, just kind of taking something that happens behind closed doors, this, this wealth and these deals that are concentrated in just a few hands and helping to really open that up to be wealth building mechanisms for people who live in low income communities to be able to have a part and to be able to invest. I mean, that's, sadly, it's, it's been way too long. And I think that's where my mind goes to the other side of the conversation of like rewinding back to season one, where we had Gerard talking about the monopoly game and the fact that in some ways it's like trying to level a playing field by letting people start to play monopoly once all the properties bought up, right? right. 
and saying, all right, now good luck with your $5. Broadway's already bought and you're just going to get tapped to death in this game because he told that analogy and it stuck with me for now for a year and a half of what that does to disillusion people when they've been disenfranchised for so long. How do you overcome that? It can't, surely it can't be just, oh, here's a few thousand, I have a few thousand dollars. Now I'm going to go play with the big boys after 400 years of it being concentrated in only a few hands. That alone is not enough, but that doesn't mean that it is not a worthy endeavor. It just means that it's got to be a part of a lot more of a package solution that is a lot more robust, a lot more aggressive. Because I think that in prepping for this interview, it's fascinating, Jeff. And this goes back to OSHA's interview for, for episode one of this. It's like the American, how America sees itself in its ideals and how much we've fallen short of living up to those ideals. Because even someone like yeah. Thomas Jefferson, American democracy was founded on the distributive ownership of property. Jefferson suggested that all citizens, quote unquote, I'm putting it in quotes, citizens quote, yeah. be granted mm-hmm. land starting on the first day of the Republic, because he believed that citizens would be more likely to participate responsibly in politics if they had property. And that would also prevent ownership from being consolidated into a few aristocratic families the way they had in Europe. I say that in quotes before is because we both know, and our listeners have been on this journey with us, know that's not, we didn't live up to that ideal because we, we hoarded it into the hands of just a few for so many years and centuries that now what does it look like to repair that inequity? Yes, I think that this is a, could be a part of an exciting journey, but it's got to be so much more because the gaps have been intentionally built for so much longer that it can't just be, here's a couple, here's five bucks, go play Monopoly and good luck. Yeah, I agree with that. I do agree with that. Where I would, my my counterpoint to, to this, and I don't think you're disagreeing here, but by providing a disruptive solution, which is what they're, which is what she's proposing, it allows for the conversation around the system that you've just laid out to be reimagined. Like yes. without the solution that she's yes. given us. Yes. We, we sort of think there is no way out. We do the thing where we're like, oh, it's been 400 years. How do you dismantle? What do you do? And but we you do don't that go thing. to solutions. That's right. You just throw up your yeah, hands. Yeah, nobody say, knows yeah, what to do. That's what right. are we going to do? It's, and especially in real estate, you're like, it's real estate. It's how it's been for all of that. Well, no. And she's saying, here's the solution. If you did this at scale, if this was something at a policy level, which she demonstrated that policy has, was the reason by which she was able to enter this space by policy change under the Obama administration. So, so now the opportunity to reimagine how people can enter into a equitable real estate venture is real and it's being proven and she's getting data. So yes. And yes, I think that this is a good model, a good example. And, and, and because the model is now built, it can be refined. It can be better. Like, but it's something to start with. And it's I, tangible. I it's tangible. tangible. You can go on that website. Yeah. You not can a white paper. See the portfolios. <laughs> she's right. making it. It's a real she's thing. Speaking plain speak. Right. And honestly, it's so refreshing because Jeff, you and I, we've been at so many of those meetings where it's problem focused, and you mm-hmm. leave with no sense of where to go. And it feels and overwhelming. And it yeah. does. And this is not that. And I think it's so exciting. And I love that she also realized. I mean, not everything that we're talking about, I think she already named. She's not saying it's more than it is, but it's so exciting to stumble on these examples 
of what could be a part of a complex, nuanced, layered solution that mm -hmm. helps to reimagine, helps to repair, helps to restore, helps to revitalize all the rewords mm -hmm. that you and I both love, right? Reimagine yep. road trip, Renew, three city. Right, we're, in the, right. we're in the re-business, <laughs> right? Business. <laughs> That's it. Oh, That's it. Well, cool. this was delightful. Yeah, it was yeah. really good. It was really, it gave me, I feel energized. I feel hopeful. I want to start this here in Durham. Of course, I've like all the things right now, but it's just good to see somebody taking that first initial step off of paper, thinking about what it could look like on paper through her lived experience and bringing it to life. So that was good. It is. Loved and it. I think for our listeners, I think that we, hopefully this podcast, we want to be able to give you opportunities to go and kind of get industry specific. You know, so if, if real estate is a passion of yours, regardless of whether you're a developer or someone that just wants to build wealth for your family or add to the flourishing of your community, go check out smallchange.co. Like go on the website yeah. because as you enter into that space, we're talking about this needing to be a layered solution. The wheels could start turning in your mind about how you might be able to spin off and to do something like a Resilient Ventures, right? Et cetera, et cetera. And so we're going to keep shining a light on the people doing the good work, knowing that there's got to be something for you to join to get involved in this story and for you to put your imagination to the plow. That doesn't, yeah, that's your hand to the plow, not imagination to the plow. I'm missing yeah. my metaphor. Or just imagination to work, yeah. There we go. That's, <laughs> put your imagination to work. Put your imagination uh, well, to work by work. putting your hand to the plow. Your hand to the plow. Something My brain is mush because we've been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this well, is great, though. Once again, another really fun and another fun episode and one that I learned a great deal. I hope our listeners feel the same way. And I think we've given them a tangible way to go and get even in ways that, that feels really accessible. Go check it out. Go check out that website. <laughs> Jess, I'm excited to continue to these conversations with you. There are more stories right. to be told and we're going to we're going to keep telling them, friend. I love it. Let's do it. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Just. In the spirit of sharing, if you like what you've heard, tell a friend about the show and give us a five-star rating and review. Many thanks to DJ P-Dog and producer Low Key for producing the music for our show. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 